This morning we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 14, starting with verse 22. Immediately Jesus told his followers to get into the boat and go ahead of him across the lake. He stayed there to send the people home. And after he had sent them away, he went by himself up into the hills to pray. It was late and Jesus was there alone. By this time, the boat was already far away from the land. and It was being hit by waves because the wind was blowing against it. Between three and six o'clock in the morning, Jesus came to them walking on the water. And when his followers saw him walking on the water, they were afraid. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus quickly spoke to them, have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said, Lord, if it is really you, then command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter left the boat and he walked on the water to Jesus. But when Peter saw the wind and the waves, he became afraid and he began to sink. And he shouted, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught Peter. And Jesus said, your faith is small. Why did you doubt? And after they got into the boat, the wind became calm. Then those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus and said, truly, you are the son of God. And when they had crossed the lake, they came to the shore at Gennesaret. And when the people were there, they recognized Jesus and told the people all around that Jesus had come and they brought all their sick to him. They begged Jesus to let him touch just the edge of his coat and all who touched were healed. Uh, before we start this morning, just I want you to answer a question for me. Out of all the things that God could do for you, is there anything he could do for you that would be better than drawing you closer to him? Now, don't answer that too quickly or a certain way just because we're in church. Because if you think about all the things God could do for you, it's a pretty long list. God could cause you to win the lottery. God could cause you to win a championship or a scholarship. God could cause you to meet that special someone. He could heal someone. He could save someone. The things God could do for us are, I mean, it's a long list. God could make, like, Nebraska string some stops together defensively. I mean, he could make the other team punt which is something we can't seem to do. But if, what if I asked this way? What if I said, what is, what's the greatest thing in the universe? What's the most beautiful thing in the universe? What's the strongest thing in the universe? We would say God, God, God every time, right? Right? So if God is the most beautiful, if God is the greatest, if God is the best thing in or out of our universe, could he really do anything for us that would be better than pulling us closer to him? I'm pretty sure the answer to that question is no. There's nothing that would be better. And because that's true, I think that's part of the reason why God doesn't give us everything we want. Because when we get our eyes set on stuff that's not Him, when we get our hearts fixed on something that's not Him which is best, 
And even when we start to get a little bit of that stuff we have our hearts set on, that's when something begins to drive a wedge between us and what is really best. If what I really think will make me happy is more money, and if I get a little bit more money, guess what my heart will want? A little bit more. If I have a little bit of success and that feels good, guess what that will create a desire for in me? More success. And I think sometimes that's why God allows certain things to happen in our lives that might be tragic, are certainly difficult. We call them storms, we call them trials. Because as Christians who are prone to wander, sometimes it's, it's those types of things, those storms in our lives that drive us like up into his lap, closer to him. And, and if it's something, if it drives me closer to him, it's what was best. J.I. Packer, if you've ever read anything that he, he wrote, he wrote this concept this way. He said, Grace is God drawing sinners closer and closer to Him. How does God in grace prosecute or accomplish this purpose, drawing people closer and closer to Him? Not by shielding us from assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil, nor by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances, not even by shielding us from troubles created by our own temperament and psychology. But here's how he draws us closer. But rather by exposing us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to cling to him more closely. The reason the Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock and a firm defense and a sure refuge and help for the weak is that God spends so much of his time showing us that we're weak, both mentally and morally, and that we dare not trust ourselves to find or follow the right road. Therefore, he takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence to trust him. Where we pick up today in the Gospel of Matthew that we've been studying through for some time now, we're in the middle, we're sort of at the halfway point of what I've called Jesus' boot camp. Jesus has taken his disciples and he's taken them out of where they normally have been to a secluded place and he's going to try to tear them down so he can build them back up. And what he wants is he wants to, he's wanting to prepare them for when their war really starts, when he's no longer there physically. He's gonna, he knows already he's going to go to the cross, he's going to die for sin, he's going to rise again, he's going to ascend into heaven. And these 11 of these 12 guys and some close friends are going to be left to try to impact the entire world for Christ. And last week in the the first lesson of Jesus' boot camp, Jesus 
wanted to teach them, hey guys, he wanted to show them, demonstrate to them, as long as you stay connected to me, I can do through you, I can do amazing, miraculous stuff you're not capable of doing. That was what we studied last week. It's the same day as what happened here. And Jesus taught that lesson by by teaching or by feeding thousands and thousands of people miraculously through the disciples. The disciples only had five little loaves of bread and two smoked or pickled fish. And Jesus commanded them to feed maybe 10, 15,000 people. And the disciples actually did the work of taking the food around, but Jesus did the miracle that allowed them to do it. And that's the lesson. I can do through you what you can't do on your own if you are obedient to me. Just bring what you have to me. Don't be so focused on what you don't have. Bring to me what you do have. Allow me to use you and the miraculous will happen. And what a fantastic, miraculous lesson. And where we last left the disciples last week, they each were holding a basket filled with miraculously prepared bread, looking down into more bread than they started with. And what a, what a high that must have been. But today Jesus has a different lesson. <laughs> because immediately, we're told... Jesus makes his disciples get into one of their boats and sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he knows they're headed into the teeth of a storm, a contrary wind, and a trial. Today, Jesus is going to teach his disciples another lesson about being good disciples. And it's about how to be a good disciple even when the storm hits. Last week, he showed them how awesome it could be when they're obedient. Today, he shows them how difficult it can be when they're obedient. (laughs) This, I love this passage. I love this story. It almost preaches itself, but it won't. (laughs) Uh, So that's why I'm here. Usually, I teach through a passage what's really there, and then at the end we talk about what we should learn. We're going to do it a little differently. Almost every verse has a lesson for you and for me. I picked out 11 things that I want us to learn through this passage, and we're just going to go verse by verse and teach them one lesson at a time. Now, nobody wants to sit through an 11-point sermon, so I've divided this baby in half. Can I get an amen? Okay, we're going to, we're, we'll do... A little over half of those 11 points this week. Come back next week. Peter's going to walk on water and we'll learn some different things from that. But, so basically the next two weeks is one giant sermon of Jesus' boot camp. How to be a good disciple. What to remember as a good disciple when the storms of life hit. We start in verse 22. Or I think we learn this. When we are struggling, when we find ourselves in a storm, we need to remember that the Lord brought us wherever we are. The Lord brought you to where you are, even if where you are is difficult. In verse 22, notice I've mentioned it already, but 
immediately after the feeding, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into that boat on that body of water on that evening and head into that storm. The storm they walk into, Jesus made them go into. He sent them anyway, even though he knew the storm would be out there. We can be just like these disciples in a lot of ways. That's why this, all of this passage is so applicable to us. But when the disciples were out there in that boat, rowing against a contrary wind, and Jesus said, I want you to go to the other side. That's what I want. Well, what if the wind isn't blowing me in that direction? What if it's really hard? That's where I want you to go. And they're obedient. They're trying. Do you think it crossed their mind at some point, why would Jesus want us to be doing this? Why would Jesus want us to be going through this? I can't fathom a single reason why this is a good idea. Well, just because we can't come up with the reasons and the, the, why this is happening doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't have reasons for this to be happening. He's smarter than we are. He knows more than we do. Even when we can't see the reasons, it doesn't make the storm ultimately not what's best. I want you to notice this seems like a, like a weird, far-out experience for us, right? If we were in there, oh, I'm in the middle of an ocean. It's not an ocean, it's a giant lake. But I'm in the middle of this huge body of water, and then I'm in this prehistoric boat. And it's really, this is a workplace issue for them, right? This would not be like you in some foreign land going through this. At least four of these guys, Jesus' inner circle was made up of Andrew and Peter and James and John. What did they do for a living? Fishermen, where did they do their fishing? On this body of water. In what boat? That one. (laughs) It was one of their boats. I don't know which set of brothers. But undoubtedly it was their boat. This is is a, a storm that hit them at work. In their normal lives. And they couldn't understand why they were going through it. Now, I I do want to make... You know, I mentioned what, whatever I'm struggling with, the Lord brought me there or allowed it. I, I do want to say something else. I'm stealing these words from a guy named Warren Wearsby, a, a preacher I really admire. There are, when storms start in my life, there are different reasons why they start. Some are storms of correction, Wearsby said, and some are storms of perfection. There's a difference between a storm of correction and a storm of perfection. A storm of correction happens when God allows something into my life because I need corrected. I need to change course. And so he's trying to get me to stop this and start this. Right? To change my direction. And this can happen a couple of different ways. Uh, Let's say I decide to take up a second job stealing cars and selling them on the black market. Okay? If I get caught in that career... I'm going to find myself in the middle of a pretty significant storm in my life, right? Now, I probably shouldn't blame God for that happening. 
I would just be dealing with uh, the, the, the natural results of me, in that case, me being an idiot, right? Some, sometimes we feel consequences of making poor decisions. It's still a storm, and guess why God allows it? Because he, he, in that case, would want me to correct my course and come back to him. Some storms of correction are, are just God's discipline. Maxwell, stop it. I'm better than what you are chasing. And he allows some storm to make me take stock of my life, do some repenting, some confessing, and get back toward him. That's a storm of correction. But what the disciples went through on this day, there's no correction to this. Storms happen in our lives when we're not doing anything wrong. The disciples did exactly what Jesus told them. Get into that boat, sail in that direction until you get to the other side. And that's exactly what they were doing. And the storm happened anyway. Sometimes God... God allows things into our lives, not to punish us, not because we're doing anything wrong, just to remind us to depend on only Him. To drive us into His life. This reminds me, this first point, reminds me of giving medicine to our oldest son, Ike, when he was little. Liquid medicine's disgusting, right? Nobody really like, likes the taste of liquid medicine, but Ike had a very special hatred for liquid medicine. When he would see it start to pour in the little cup, his gag reflex would start to kick in. You start to pour it, and Ike would be over there going, oh, ah, just retching. It was awesome. I mean, it was a storm for him. It was a treat for me. I, I gave him medicine just when I got bored, to be honest. But if in his little mind, though... He could not understand for the life of him how that, how putting that disgusting elixir in my mouth could be what is best for me. Now, as his parents, we knew it was exactly what was best for him. That's how, that's how we are with God sometimes. Little Ike hadn't done anything wrong and he had to take this medicine. Sometimes we haven't done a thing wrong and some wretched, terrible situation we just find ourselves in. Just to show us, to remind us that He can get us through it, that He's better than anything else, and to return us to Him. All right. The second thing we learn shows up in verse 23. We read this, and after Jesus sent the crowds away, he went up the mountain by himself to pray, and and when evening came, he was there alone. What we learn in that verse is this. The Lord sees us, the Lord cares for us, and I would add the Lord prays for us during our trials, during our storms. So Jesus tells the guys, all right, you got to get in that boat. No, I don't want want any back talk. You just get in the boat, you row row over there. Then Jesus sends the crowds away, and he goes up. He goes up on some high point, looking out over over the sea, and he's alone. And what's he doing while he's alone up there? He's praying. Every time I see in the Gospels a picture of Jesus praying, I'm reminded this. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do I? 
What do you suppose Jesus was praying for? Up there. You know what I think he was praying for? I think he was praying for his disciples out in that boat in that storm. Now, I don't think he was praying that they would get out of the storm. Because he could have quit. We've seen this, that movie before. He could have stopped that storm like that. He wasn't praying for them to get out of the storm. He was praying for them to get out of the storm what they were supposed to get out of the storm. Like not them get out of the storm, but to get something out of the storm. To get out of the storm what he wanted them to get out of the storm. Do you know Jesus is still just like this for us? The Apostle Paul, ooh, sorry, I overclicked. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 wrote this. Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is right now. He's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Interceding is a fancy way of saying praying. Paul told the Christians in the church of Rome, right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for you. That hasn't stopped. Whatever you are going through, I don't, know, I don't know what you're going through right now, or maybe it'll be another six months before you go through a storm. But when you are going through it, it is never proof that God doesn't love you, that God doesn't care about you, that God doesn't see you, that God has abandoned you. He sees, He cares, and He is praying that your heart will get out of this trial what he wants your heart to receive. Here's how I see this in this passage. Did Jesus see his disciples the whole time during this? Did he see them? I mean, it was nighttime, it was dark, and it was obviously cloudy, but he saw them the entire time. You know how I know? Because when he walks to them, did did he have to send out a search party to find these guys? It's a big, it's a needle in a haystack. He walks right to them. Right? We don't read, he doesn't, hey guys, where are you guys? There's none of that. Marco! Right? There's none of that. He goes right to them. He sees them the whole time. He's above them, but he sees them. And he cares. The next time, the next trial that hits in your life, would you attack a trial differently if your heart was confident that the Lord sees you and cares for you and is praying for you right now? The next time you find yourself in a trial, maybe you should talk to the Lord like this. Lord, I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't know why you allowed it. But I don't live by explanations. I live by your promises. I live by faith. And you have led me to this. And you are there, aren't you, Lord? You see me, don't you, Lord? You're praying for me right now, aren't you, Lord? If you are praying that I get the right thing out of this and come to you in the right way from this, then that's what I want too. Oh, 
One thing I want you to know that in Jesus' boot camp, one more thing he's doing here. This isn't the first time the disciples have been through a storm with Jesus, is it? Last time he was in the boat with them and he calmed the storm. Do you remember that? You know what he's teaching them through this? Like, I don't have to be physically in the boat with you for me to still be in control of the situation. Right? We can still be in the boat with Jesus without being able to see Jesus. He, we are no more alone whether we can see him or not see him. That's going to be import, an important lesson for the disciples moving forward. Third thing we learn comes in verse 24 and the first part of verse 25. This was a big lesson from last week's passage too, but it's a big one for the disciples. So Jesus uh, teaches it again, some reinforcement. And that's this. Number three, God often takes us past our strength, our ability, our talent to a place where we have no choice but to completely depend on him and his strength and his abilities. Because of the, the verses say this, Meanwhile, the boat, already far from land, was taking a beating from the waves because the wind was against it. And this was during the fourth watch of the night. You heard Troy's version said between 4 and 6, 3 and 6 a.m. Matthew tells us that the, this boat, it was many stadia from land. I don't know how far that is. He just says many stadia. It's a long ways. It's way out there in the middle. And uh, I like this translation. It says that the, the boat was taking a beating. Matthew, our author, he was in that boat, right? He lived this story. Listen to the word he chose. I love this. Uh, it's it's batsanizo. It's, it's, a, it's a Greek verb used for torturing someone. <laughs> he uses the word for torture. He's like, man, I was in there. We were out in that boat, and the waves were torturing that boat. I don't ever want to be in a boat that's being tortured by the ocean. Thank you very much. But that's what Matthew felt like. Again, four of these guys are experienced sailors. I'm sure they used every trick in the sailor book. And nothing worked. Because it really is best for Jesus to bring us closer to himself. Sometimes in order to do that, he has to break our pride, our self-sufficiency, to drive us toward himself. Hmm. Till all we can do is depend on him. That's the third thing. The fourth thing, if I can make it come on the screen here. Here we go. Fourth thing we learn is in the second part of verse 25. What terrifies us is nothing to him, but I don't want you to I don't want you to think I mean what terrifies us Jesus doesn't care about because he cares. I just mean compared to Jesus, the worst thing we could go through is inconsequential. Verse 25 says, As the night was ending, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. So this the same stormy sea that brought experienced sailors to a point of exhausted panic is nothing to Jesus. He just walks on top of it. What do you suppose they were praying for? I bet they were praying for the storm to stop. Maybe they were wishing they had a bigger boat 
We're going to need a bigger boat for if you've ever seen the movie Jaws. Remember that? Uh, Jesus doesn't need a boat at all. And it doesn't matter to him that the storm keeps raging. What terrifies them, he just strolls on top of. Maybe the most helpful, practical thing you can do, I can do. And our next storm is to try and see that thing, whatever it is that we're dealing with, from Jesus' perspective. Because whatever it is, he is bigger. He is stronger. He can, at the very same time, he can care for us in our storm without being intimidated by it in the least. He does not despair at the scariness of our storms. What terrifies us is nothing to him. The fifth thing we learn comes in verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. The Greek, phantasm, you ever hear the word phantasm? That's what they say in Greek. It's an apparition. Here's what we learn from that verse, I think. It is a normal reaction, but it's always a wrong reaction to believe that God means to harm you. As a believer, it's a normal, but it's a wrong reaction to believe that God means your harm. The disciples see Jesus walking on water. What are they actually seeing? They're seeing what's best for them. They're seeing help on the way. They're seeing God at work. But what they think they see is things have just gone from bad to worse. First, we can't get anywhere. The storm is overwhelming us. Now we got ghosts showing up. What else could happen? What they think is the worst. How could things get anything? How could, how, could, how could things possibly get worse? And now we have ghosts walking toward us. Now, here's how we do this in our lives. My storm starts, and what do I think God is doing? Now, God has finally had enough. God is going to let me have it. God is getting me. I'm going to get what I deserve. My chickens are coming home to roost. Listen to me, Christian. God's not like that. Even if the storm, the next storm you go through is a storm of correction where God wants you to change courses, He has no desire left, no need left to punish you. You know why? Because every ounce of the punishment he needed to satisfy his justice was poured out on his son. The cup of God's wrath is empty for you. I know some of you grew up with a parent or a step-parent that when they had had it and you never knew when that was coming, but when they had had it, you knew for your own good and your own safety you had better find some place else to be. You hid under the bed, you hid in the closet, you went downstairs, you ran down the street. Because once that parent found out what he or she found out, 
It is not safe for me to be around him. That is not what God is like. God destroyed his own son so that you could be close to him. He has not changed his mind that that was a good idea. Even when he wants to correct your course, or if he's just allowed a storm to show you the value of your faith, his heart's desire is the same, for you to be close to him. He wants what is best for you. And when I chase something that's not best, he wants to correct my course, but not because he's finally had it. And now you're going to learn a lesson. Right? That's not God. He says, just turn. Just turn back to him. Just come, just come to me. He, does, he is not trying to drive you away someplace safer. There's no place safer and there's no place better. That storm may be difficult. It may be tragic. It may be horrific. It may be awful. It may be painful. But it is not the God of the universe trying to do you harm and get you out of his sight because he's sick of you. And our last one for today, the sixth thing we learn is this. The cure for fear is not the absence of storm, but the presence of God. Here's what we read, and all of our English versions say something very, very close. They're scared, but immediately Jesus spoke to them. And here's what Jesus says. Have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Two commands... Sandwiched around, it is I. Have courage. Don't be afraid. But why? All right, something happens in the Greek here that I want to make you aware of. Um, it's, it's hard to bring out in English. You ever hear God called the great I am? Or just I am? It comes from clear back in Exodus. A guy named Moses was out in the middle of nowhere and he saw this bush that seemed to be on fire but it wasn't burning up so he went to investigate and God uh, spoke to Moses. He looked a lot like Charlton Heston and he, God spoke to Moses out of that burning bush um, and told him some stuff and Moses wanted to know what God's name was. He, just, he asked him what his name was. Like, do we call you like Steve? Like Frank? What's your... And God said... Uh, in English, I am that I am. Um, ahayeh, asher ahayeh, in Hebrew. I am what I, I exist. Later that, got short, that gets shortened to just I am, Yahweh, and it just, in English, or we usually pronounce that Yahweh. Have you ever heard God called Jehovah? It's just because back in the day people didn't understand what they were reading in Hebrew. I'll explain that to you some other time separately. Yahweh is really what God said his name was, and it just means I am. It's the Hebrew be verb. In school, you have to learn the be verbs, am, is, are, was, were, be, being, been. Yahweh is I am. It's the be verb, I exist. And when you take that, Yahweh, and put it into Greek, how do you say I am in Greek? Well, it looks like this. That says, ego, a me, um, because Greek verbs, but it's a special way to say I am. Greek verbs, unlike English ones, they have a subject and a verb in the same word. 
This word by itself, a me, means I am, all by itself. If you were going to say, I am going to the store, you would just say, a me, going to the store, because it already means I am. This word right here is the first person personal pronoun, I, ego, means I. And when you put these two together, a me means I am by itself. Ego a me means I, I am. There's a redundancy that you don't need. When a Greek speaker said ego a me, there's only a couple times you would do that. One is to emphasize the I. Like if I was going to say, no, you're not going to the store. I am going to the store. If I really wanted to emphasize the I, I might say ego a me. And the only other time is if you were using God's Old Testament name. Because in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this is how they wrote. This is a very common word. So they wrote God's name using ego a me. Instead of Yahweh, they wrote ego a me. I am. Now, Here's why that's important. Because that's what Jesus was proclaiming when he walks across uh, the water to his petrified disciples. This right here says, Ego a me. Our our translators decide to emphasize the I. It is I, which sounds like Superman or something, right? Sounds weird. They're trying to get across to emphasize the I. If you're a Bible writer, I would write, I am in there, because that's what he says. So, they're petrified, they're mortified, they're terrified. And he says, I'm ordering, this is a command, have courage, don't be afraid. Why? Because I am is with you. You don't have to be afraid. I know you're scared because you are where you are. But you, being where you are, does not change that I am that I am. You do not have to be afraid. Because you're, on, you're with me now. The great I am. I believe this is when Matthew first learned who Jesus really was. In a few weeks, the disciples will say through Peter that they believe he's divine, the Son of God, but they prove it at the end of this passage. If you peek down, we'll look at it next week. What do they do with Jesus when he gets in the boat with them? They bow down and they worship him. Every good Jew knew you don't worship anything that's not God. Worshiping Jesus is worshiping God. That's why he accepts the worship and why they give it. You do not have to be afraid because I am is here. Later on, when Matthew would write this book we've been studying, he said, this was promised a long time ago. Isaiah said a virgin will, will, uh, will bear a child and they shall give him the name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. You don't have to be afraid. Why? Because God's not against you. That's not why you're in this storm. You have God with us, with you. And all those things, I believe, are what we learn. There's nothing better God could do than anything that would draw you closer to him. And he will try many different avenues. Some of them don't feel very good. 
But there is nothing better than being close to the Lord Jesus. You know what the best thing about heaven's going to be? It's not you're going to be reunited with your family members, though that's going to be great. It's not that he's going to dry all the tears from your eye and you're never going to have any more anxiety, though that will be wonderful. The best thing about, Jesus, about heaven is that Jesus is going to be there. And you're going to be closer to him than you ever have been. What do we learn from all these things? Next time your, a storm hits in your life, here's what we remember. First, wherever you are, he brought you there. He brought you to it. He'll lead you through it, however you want to remember it. You may be there because someone else has sinned against you. You may be there because you have sinned and done something wrong. You may be there just because it's your turn. I don't know. But you're not there by accident. And you're not there because he doesn't see and he doesn't care. Number two, he sees where you are. He cares what you're going through. He prays for you. He may be just taking you past your ability, your talents, so that you learn to depend on him. Fourth, I would, I would encourage you to try and see that storm from his perspective. It makes it seem less scary and him seem like more help. And finally, you already have the antidote for fear. It's not the presence of the storm. Jesus didn't say, do not fear because look, the storm's gone. Do not fear because your boat got bigger. He said, do not fear because I am. Because I'm with you. You don't have to be afraid. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, what 160 of us here this morning, we've all had different trials. Some of us are going through them. Some of us have just survived them. Some of us are heading toward one we don't even see coming. I do not pray. I do not ask for trials for me or for my church family, Lord. But here's what I know. If you bring us into one, somehow it is best. If it drives us to cling to you. Thank you, Lord, for absorbing the storm on our behalf. Thank you for the lesson of that you walk above what terrifies us. Draw us to yourself. Help us feel you walking toward us through our trial. We love you, Lord. We do not need to be afraid because you are who you are. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.